by being our fully embodied selves, yeah. we give other people permission mm. to be embodied. It is the gift. That is the gift. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think a lot of people come from families where that that we can be the ones who break that cycle yeah. and give people. God, just what a what a ministry to give permission. Yeah. Kids do it without thinking yeah. about it. Mm. There's a story of this little girl. I don't know where I stole the story from. This little girl is furiously drawing in class, drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing. And the teacher comes to her and says, what are you drawing? And she's like, I'm drawing God. And the teacher is like, kind of gently was like, well, I mean, you can't really draw God because nobody knows what God looks like. And without me to, without missing a beat, the little girl says, well, they will now. So mm. there's that. Like, I, wow. think, I think kids don't, <laughs> they don't have the theological separation that we get. That we yeah. get, that I feel I feel like it gets learned out of us. Hello, welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byron. We're glad you're with us. We have today a very special guest. Uh, a friend who I met, I met first on our online COVID year and immediately recognized the life and joy in his face and knew that once we were in person that I had to connect with this beautiful soul. His name is Wesley Stephen Rowell. His story will speak for itself. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself a little? Hi, I would. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Char and Byron. So I am a third year student at Princeton Theological Seminary, and I will be graduating in what twenty four. Oh my days? goodness! Yeah. So I'm um, with a Master's of Divinity, which seems like a title that should so should so definitely be changed. Mm. <laughs> that, that is really, masters of anything is really bad for You got it. You mastered yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think what that means for me is, um, I think a, a, a successful degree from here or from anywhere is that I have more questions than when I came in. Mm. And I think that that's, for me, that's the point. So I'm happy to be here yeah. in Princeton. With well, you. I'm curious to start off and this is maybe moving in a different direction than I had originally anticipated for this conversation, but as you bring up questions, what are some questions either that you feel like you've been able to let go of or questions, beautiful questions that you've picked up along the way? You know, I think one of the reasons that I thought that I was called to seminary was I was out in the world um, being allowed to preach, and I just, I needed, I felt that I needed some concrete, factual knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also thought I wanted answers. As a queer man, I thought I needed bulletproof answers to all of the bigotry and hatred that queer people, especially want to identify as queer Christians, come up against. And so I wanted answers. You know, it's easy to get answers to like the clobber passages. That's easy. That's nothing. I don't. I don't even speak to those anymore. But I just wanted answers. And this is not what. And I got more questions, uh, which is, I think, at first it was frustrating that no one would tell me the answer. 
And mm. then it became this really beautiful thing. Yeah. Perhaps this isn't even the right question to be asking, but are there certain questions that stand out to you right now that are leading you into the next chapter? These big questions that you've been grateful to have? I would say after living in New York for such a long time, New York City, I, most of my friends in New York City are what I would call unchurched and almost all of them, um, most of them gay men had grown up in a church. Many of them were super active in a church and they got to the point where they would literally say to me, well, God doesn't like the gays. And they were, they were like, so therefore we don't like God. And I needed, I needed to be able to address that. Well, one of the things that I have loved talking to you about that so many of our hangouts going late into the wee hours of the night have been about embodiment. And you mentioned your identity as a queer man, but specifically as a queer black man, uh, that you have multiple layers of your identity that have in various circles that you've existed in not been allowed to exist in their whole self. And another aspect of this too is not just these more externally recognizable aspects of your identity, but like your inner child who hasn't been allowed to have space. So I would love to talk to you and just essentially pick up from where we've left off, maybe even bring the highlights of some of our conversation, but to have a free-form conversation about embodiment. My first question is, what's going on with your body right now? <laughs> oh, I'm a little, so I'm in this like kind of like torture chamber <laughs> of a recording studio. My body is like reacting to being like in this small yeah. space. So I'll try to uh, loosen it up. I, so not re- pretty recently, few months ago on Twitter, some like weird Episcopalian Twitter said something like, what is the one thing that keeps you being Christian, mm. that keeps you Christian? And some woman wrote, and I, I, she's like, well, the word became flesh and lived among us. I can't get over that. I cannot. I will <laughs> never be able to get over that. And, and so I think here we are in this religion that is literally based on bodies on a body and somehow we've become well not somehow we've become the most disembodied people on the planet Mm. the church is not the place you think where where am i going to go for embodiment and you go to 95 percent of churches and you know the body is looked at as something sinful Mm. uh or just this like mere vessel that's not important to faith and it's not important to our Christianity. And I'm like, well, but what about that body that, that, that was among us mm-hmm. that we've, that all of like, and so there's a huge disconnect. Um, I grew up with that disconnect. And when I discovered my sexuality or my sexuality discovered me, what it felt like was I was just getting pulled further and further away from the God that I was handed. Mm-hmm. It was given to me. And I'm, obsessed maybe about bringing those parts of myself together and being and, 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 and integrating all of that within who I am and in who we are as, as avowed Christians, I guess. Mm-hmm. And on that journey of being pulled away from the God that you were given, was there something disembodying about your past that was being taken away from you? Because you're, you're given this religious foundation that was slowly falling apart when you realized you couldn't be all of yourself and hold on to that. And clearly you've, you've come now into a deep and profound 
spirituality, but there is some limbo. There is some purgatory almost there of leaving behind this thing that was significant in your spiritual walk. For me, and I can't speak for everyone, for me it was absolutely necessary. Sure. Because what I see is a lot of, in the church today is a lot of seminary. We've seen these like mm -hmm. disembodied folks walking around campus, mm -hmm. like literally like not connected in their body in any way. And I, so I think I had to figure out what my body needed to do before I could. My separation from the church was absolutely necessary yeah. for my sanity and for me to be able to come back to the church. Mm -hmm. I had to get away. And this is all internal, uh, mostly internal. I felt like I was being crushed. Mm -hmm. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Mm. And uh, people deal with that in all kinds. Some people, you know, deal with that by, so beyond sexuality, but some people do that, that becoming deeply closeted or deeply whatever it is. Um, and they're just, it's just locked away. Yeah. And I think, I really think that's not what we're called to do. I was thinking that like of all of Jesus's miracles, this is probably wrong, but most of Jesus's miracles, they were very, they were embodied. They were mm. about bodies, whether it's spitting in the, in the clay and putting on it like, and I think we just got so, yeah, I used to blame Augustine, but I don't blame Augustine <laughs> anymore. I really want to blame Augustine. He's so easy to blame, yeah. but I think it was <laughs> Augustine's own shit. Yeah. You know, Augustine's own context, Augustine's own shame. Mm -hmm. And we literally made it into doctrine. Mm. And I'm like, ooh. And and Augustine said some of the most beautiful things yeah. ever. So I can't blame Augustine. I can blame, like, let's let's grab onto this aspect mm. of this so we can control people's bodies. Yeah. And I think we've done a great disservice to the church and to him. Yeah. I was having a conversation with Dr. Reichel recently and... I was sharing some thoughts that I had about the Trinity and they were like, oh, that sounds very Augustine. And I'm like, no, because <laughs> I don't want to like him. Yeah. But it's like, no, he has, he has a lot of beautiful things to a say. A lot of beautiful things to yeah. say. And I think it's true with Martin Luther, Martin certainly. Luther. Calvin even. Even Calvin. Even Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven forbid. Even, we say even Calvin. It's just, and you know, and I think a wonderful thing about the education here maybe is you do get somebody like a Dirk Smith. Mm who talks about Calvin in such a beautiful way. Yeah. I'm like, oh, what is it? Throwing the baby out with the, that's what a weird. <laughs> what a weird expression. What a weird throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's such a horrible expression, but I, well, whatever. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I answered anything that you just asked me. I mean, this is just a chance to chat and have your spirit shared in our community because you're such a beautiful spirit. I think the, the essence of my question though is, you know, we've had conversations about um, little Stephen and the ways more recently, and, and we'll get to this probably more specifically if you're willing to um, discuss that, but there's an aspect of your religious background that was tied to your childhood. You know, it was important to you and you saying that it was necessary for you to be fully embodied by leaving the church. I don't disagree with that, but I want to also acknowledge the pain of that rupture that, that there's maybe even something disembodied about having to leave behind your past in a way that you've since been able to reinterpret and, and come back and reclaim. I mean, I think it's a great point of pain that so many people that I know, the 
first place that nurtured you, the first place that made you feel special, the first place that you were in front of people reciting Bible verses was in the church. Mm-hmm. And this place, and it's, I think especially for, you know, little gay boys and girls who were like the most perfect kids always and always were the ones in front. And then all of a sudden at some point you start realizing, oh, they're talking about me in this sermon. They're talking about me. And, and the, so it's a, it's such a disillusionment that this very thing that genuinely this, this, this institution that genuinely just fed you and lifted you up, all of a sudden, like, it's like the rug is pulled out from under you. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, I, 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 you know, I have a, one of my closest friends, Dave, who would probably say that he's uh, agnostic. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm going through something, he's, he's like, did you remember to pray? Mm-hmm. And so there's this, I think, among my friends, there's this literal thirst mm. for God. And the disservice that the church has done is not given these people, queer people, trans people, the space to love God. And well, that's that's reason to go to seminary by itself, mm. I think. What would that look like for the church to start to make that space? Wesley's church. <laughs> um, the, the new Wesleyanism. <laughs> you know, it's funny because it, there's this awkward phase that churches do try to do it. Like, mm-hmm. we've, you know, we've experienced chapel where like... Let's have embodied, you know, you see these like four people who've never danced before in their lives. But I think that's probably, that awkwardness is probably necessary. Mm. You know. Like birthing pains almost. Yeah. Like, and some of it is like, would you like, just dance in church in general is like, just so, you know, I cringe, but I'm like, when do we get to move our bodies? When do we get to, when, you know, ah. Even the way that I think we read scripture, you know, I, I didn't realize that Princeton was one of the only places on the planet that has a year of speech, right? And most of that speech is about embodying the scripture. Uh, and I recently heard a woman say, an Episcopal priest say, scripture should just be read in a monotone. <laughs> like, like, because... You're putting too much of, the, of yourself you're in putting it, too right? much of, and, and you're, that's just vanity. And I'm like, mm. oh, shit, this is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. This is a problem. And I, I, I think part of our jobs, I think, I think the gift of queerness, mm. the mm-hmm. absolute gift of queerness, is that, our, is that at our best, we refute that. It's an absolute, like, actually, no. And I, I think that's a really gorgeous, beautiful thing. Actually, no, I have to be my whole self. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I will say, I'm surprised. I, I didn't know, you know, there are people who go to Princeton Seminary and their pastors will have told them, oh, you go to that progressive seminary. Mm. My, in New York, I was worried that this place wasn't going to be progressive enough. Mm. And I've been very pleasantly surprised. Mm. But I don't think it's a given. I think it's because people here, students here, is from the ground up, forced totally. it. It's like, totally. here's what we're going to, here's what's not going to, here's what's not going to happen. I'm not going to bring my queer self here and not be queer. Mm-hmm. You're not going to use me for, uh, for, to advertise your diversity without me bringing my whole self. And I think for the most part, I felt very affirmed in that. I don't know, if, I don't know if that's been your experience. 
I, I'd love to hear Byron's thoughts too. I mean, for myself in my ongoing journey of unpacking gender, unpacking what it means to be uh, gender queer. I don't even necessarily use the term non-binary. I'm not opposed to it, but that started to feel like its own new box. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the idea of categorizing myself in a way that is gendered. I want the ways that gender is uh, beautifully stemming from within myself to be allowed to be itself without having an expectation of a box it's supposed to fit into. Mm. And institutions thrive on boxes. They need boxes. Progressive institutions can allow for new boxes, but they don't really know what to do with boxlessness. Mm. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit is not something that can be boxed in, whether in our own personal Let's go, John 3. You know, whether it be in our lived experience, uh, whether it be in the ways that we embody um, uh, justice and love and um, honesty, community, all of these things, I I don't think there's a formula. I don't think there's a box. And it's really hard in an institution to celebrate that because institutions will fall apart the moment that we really celebrate breaking down boxes because those boxes are tied to the institutions that uphold them. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- trying to think outside of institutions, I'm curious, Wesley, you've talked a lot about what the church wasn't able to do, mm-hmm. and yet a place that you have arrived of celebrating and uh, having discovered and embodied, embraced some level of embodiment in your own self-discovery. I'm curious... Where has, what have been the sources, where has that come in? What are the practices? What are the sources where you discovered that? Whether mm. it was something outside the church, um, you know, I, I know that there's a lot in uh, other cultures that hopefully not appropriately, but but can be tasted and accessed that then comes back to inform the church once we, mm. if and once we hop back in. So yeah, sources and practices is what I'm curious about. I mean, <laughs> I think it's really good to have a lot of gay sex. <laughs> like, uh, but Noted. you know, okay. <laughs> like, but I, th- <laughs> I, I, I do think that, you know, I, my first love career was being a singer. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that that was I was real limited in what I thought God was able to do. I, I was God was very scarce, so I was always upset when people had more than one gift. I'm like, okay, my gift is singing. That's that's all. That's all you get. That's all you get, Quinn. You get singing. And I was always weird when people were like, "Well, I'm an actor and I dance." And I'm like, "How? No, that can't be true." And so God was real stingy. Mm. My God. And but what that did was, you know, when I stopped going to church moved to Chicago and then I moved to New York. I needed a job. So I got jobs singing in churches. And I think that was God's way of keeping me connected. Mm. And I was doing a bodily thing. Mm. Uh, and I sang at churches, you know, as a musician, you go where the money is and the, the, the places that have the money are the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians. Mm. The first big church job I had was Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago with this man named John Buchanan and this is like the 90s, middle of the age crisis. People were dying left and right. And I remember going to this very rich, very white church. And I knew I had my mind made up. And this man gets up, this middle-aged white guy, straight guy. And 
his first sermon, he talked about uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, and he talked about uh, Baby Sug's speech, um, We Flesh Here, yeah. and it was all body. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, shit, there's something in And I remember, like, in the 90s, I was reading uh, Marcus Borg and J- uh, Dominic Cross and, like, all these people who were doing the, what was it called, the Jesus Project? The Historical Jesus. Jesus. The host- and on my own... <laughs> this little queen. I was not <laughs> buying these books, but I'm like, oh, I, I'm not interested I don't in God. It. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and, and so the, God knew what God was doing, and, and all of a sudden, I was at church all. I was in church every week, mm. I, and I, I got to a point. I was at a very progressive church in New York, Reverend Jackie Lewis, mm. BTS graduate, and I started seeing myself. And I started, and one day I showed up without being paid. Wow, and that was it. And I remember her saying, we got you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> crazy lady. And, and so I, I, it's, I think it's that journey and those experiences. And, you know, it's weird. I've, I am in the ordination process with the Episcopal Church. And what I've found in that is that I am really kind of bizarrely feeling more Anglo-Catholic. Mm. And I think the reason why is It doesn't make, it's a contradiction for me because there's an embodiment that Catholicism has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we got that, the fleshliness of it, we got rid of in the Reformation because, because of the excesses of that. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh, I'm really drawn to that because I, I'm drawn to the, 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 the art and the, 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 I keep rubbing my hands, like the, the, the wounds that are sh- mm-hmm. like, I, I, I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful thing. And it makes, it puts me back in my body. Yeah. So though, like it's, and I never thought I would say something like that because mm-hmm. I, I, I just have to think that through a little bit better, but, but I think it also was like the Orthodox church does the same thing. Yeah. I mean, for one the buildings are constructed in such a way that is meant to communicate reverence. Like a lot of the Protestant tradition is about a certain kind of minimalism so that it's not about making an idol of the physical space. And I think, you know, there's some theological significance to that as well, but there's something about when you enter into a beautiful cathedral where you feel the sense of awe just wash over you. And then in like you're describing the Anglo-Catholic or even, you know, Orthodox traditions, the smells and bells, right? Mm-hmm. That you have incense, you have various sounds that evoke a certain kind of um, spiritual depth. If anything, it's like the tradition that it's hearkening to that like has thousands of years attached to it. And then the communion, the idea of actually believing in, you know, in the Catholic sense, the transubstantiation of the elements that like we are eating the literal body and blood of Jesus. And I don't think it needs to be that specific kind of embodiment for it to be significant. And I just want to put on the air because of our connection and especially the ways that embodiment has been so important in our friendship. When I've come to communion and you've been a communion server, I get up to the front and I see you and you hand me the element and I start weeping. And that's happened on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. Even when I was giving communion Mm -hmm. during my senior service, and you got there and I just started weeping because I felt in that moment the body of Christ that is you and me together sharing the elements. That it's, it's not about this isolated experience of the elements, but it's about that experience in the embodiment of community. 
And you know, and what if what does a therapist say when you're like, if you're experiencing dissociation or a panic attack, it's like you immediately go to the five senses. What is it you name? You immediately. What are five things that you can see? What are four things that you can hear? What are three things that you can smell? It all goes back to the senses. Yeah. Uh, you know, what was last week's lectionary reading about Thomas? Like it's show me your wounds. Mm. So like touch, like let me touch them. You know, I, I and I will give him credit for this because he told me if I didn't, he would find me. Uh, <laughs> Doctor J. Paul Hines talked about. You know, when Jesus showed himself to the disciples, it would have been real easy for the wounds to have been gone. Mm-hmm. What is that thing about he was resurrected but still had wounds? Mm-hmm. And I think we were walking around, and I'm, this is the sermon I'm preaching this evening, but we're walking around with our wounds and showing each other our wounds and saying, touch these wounds. Like, and that's like the ultimate embodiment for me. Yeah. Hmm. I want to come to a quote that you've shared with me in an interview with James Baldwin. He was asked about his experience as a gay black man. And the interviewer said, do you feel like you've gotten the short end of the stick? And he said, this is a paraphrase. I don't remember the exact words, but he's like, are you kidding me? I won the jackpot. Yeah. And we've talked about that. But I think for you, it's not just being a queer black man. It's being a queer black Christian man. And, you know, in our in our modern world, there is now space where being queer and Christian is having light. Like historically, that hasn't always been the case. There, there are starting to be, you know, spaces where that is more this more. Uh, there is space for that in, you know, historically in the black community and queerness. There's been like tension in that. But. There are more and more little pockets where that's becoming okay. But the three together is something that is still very much not, it hasn't found itself as a community, right? Well, I think it is. I think I think what people want, and like you, you mentioned this earlier, like what institutions, all kinds of institutions want is to be able to put you in a certain box. Yeah. So you will put you in the queer box, but I don't know about the... How are we going to deal with the queer and the black box? And if and then how are we going to how are we going to create a box for queer, black, and Christian? And I'm like, well, there's no box. Mm. Like, what if there's no box? And I think that's real hard for people. I think that's really hard for uh, for dualistic thinkers to be like, it's got to be either or. Mm-hmm. And I have been in, certainly been in situations where it's like, well, are you queer or are you black? Mm. And the answer is yes. You know, that's the only answer. Or are you queer? Are you black? Or are you Christian? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I can't, and I can't, you know, I think the goal, I think the goal of, the goal is integration of all of those parts of ourselves that we've sometimes necessarily had to take apart. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put my queer self over here and I'll bring my Christian self to church. Those things were not possible even 30 years ago. Bringing your queer Christian black self to church was not a thing. Mm-hmm. Still I think, not a thing for a lot yeah. of people. Mm-hmm. I think the most powerful sermon that I have experienced from you, and I've heard you give a good number of sermons, was during convocation for this incoming class this last year. 
and you stood up in the pulpit as your massive 6'3 self, and you took up, you were 10 feet tall in that moment, and you said, I am black, and I am queer, and I am a Christian. And you own that so powerfully that you gave permission for everyone else who was wrestling with those tensions of how can I be all these things, whether or not their identities align with yours. I know that there are black queer Christians in that incoming class who got to see that in you. And that was probably especially powerful, but for other people as well. And the aspects of their identity that they've been struggling to integrate, your presence was this just beacon of, of acceptance that, that you can be. That it, I don't want to say that you've reached enlightenment in that sense, but like I've gotten to see you on display in the fullness of who you are. Well, I think, I do think our particularities, our particularities are the thing that the more particular we are, uh, the more universal it is. It doesn't make sense, but that, mm-hmm. I really think that's true. And so I watch when, I'm trying to remember when I, I saw it when I think Byron Ewers was one of the first sermons of first senior sermons yeah, of last year. Of year. And and my comment when somebody's fully embodied in it, I'm like, why is I didn't know Byron was that tall. Why is he <laughs> why is he nine feet, nine fucking feet tall? It was you were you were huge. And the whole space was filled in it and I remember that uh, when Dr. Sonia Waters mm-hmm. leads communion. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And she's like, these are the gifts of God. And like, she's like, I see like one of those biblical descriptions of angels. That's what she looks like to me. And I've seen that in you, Char. I've seen like, and I've also seen me and probably and you too when yeah, when we step away from our yeah. like I I've also done sermons where I've stepped out of my like something happened, you know, it's just, it's, and I, you know, I love myself enough to be like, it's okay, baby. Yeah. You know, that, that part of me, you, you talked about, uh, Wesley Stevens, Stevens, my middle name and Stevens, the name of my family still calls me everyone in my life outside of my family. I'm Wesley, but I'm, but Steven's still in me. And sometimes Steven can be scared. Yeah. And sometimes Steven needs to be soothed. And sometimes Steven comes out in a sermon when I don't really, and, <laughs> and all of a sudden I get real shy mm. and I'm like, Oh baby. And I have to have room for him too, and love him too, and I think outside of my family, this was like last year. Char, you asked me if you could call me Stephen, and it was very sweet. It, but it's it's not. Wesley can be very performative and very like I know I know how things are supposed to be. I know what's supposed to be said. I know how it's supposed to be written. And Stephen is that child who's like, well, what about this? But sometimes Stephen is scared. So, And we've been able to talk about the ways that, especially with your therapist, Karen, can I say her name? Sure. <laughs> I can edit that out if you want. But, uh, no, we can, say, we can say Karen. Yeah. How A white woman named yeah. Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck finding her. <laughs> Through God, all things are possible. <laughs> uh, that she has been really important in inviting you into this process of reconnecting with Stephen, with the childhood self. Um, and I would love to hear you share some of what that's been like, because I've seen your transformation specifically in light of that. That has felt like such an intimate place where you have come alive. And because of that, Wesley has become less performative. Um, you know, there's a, there's a group called um, 
ACA. Uh, it's a 12-step group, and it's called Adult Children of Alcoholics, but what it is is a group of people who have been impacted by dysfunctional childhoods, which is basically kind of all of us. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that they say is, you know, it's a, it's a not just like all 12-step programs. It's non-religious, but it's definitely spiritual. And they say, unless you can find your way to your inter- inner child, you cannot find God. Mm. And I'm like, well, that's a lot. I'm like, it's literally in the Bible. <laughs> right? it's mm. like, Jesus literally says <laughs> that. We don't want to hear that. No, no. But Jesus actually, and, and so I see this in this like very, you know, uh, this program that's like, you know, gone through all the like psychological models. It's like, like, it's all of like, it says all the right things, but they get, their big point is unless you can get to that child that sometimes you've necessarily had to put away. Mm-hmm. That is the way to God. And I'm like, that's incredible, but it's also, it could be, that's frightening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you've got to go, you've got to get to that kid. It's sometimes, that, especially if that kid has been abused mm-hmm. or if that kid had to keep their mouth shut or. Or if that kid got you into trouble. If that kid got you into trouble. Mm-hmm. That kid was told that they can't take up space. Yep. And I think for some reason, that kid ends up in a lot of seminaries, right? <laughs> that kid walk. That kid is walking all over this place, and you can see, you can yeah. feel it sometimes here. Yeah. But what a what a miracle when we allow mm. that child mm. and God to do what they're going to do together. Yeah. What a to play. Yeah. That sense of play. In my therapy internship this last year, one of the things that I've been doing is leading a therapy circle with preschoolers, and all of the things that I've been learning through practice in that space, I'm like, this applies to all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, we all need a space to feel secure and safe, to be our authentic selves, to be allowed to play. And play can look different for, you know, all people of different ages and different, you know, demographics otherwise, but to have the safety and sanctity of being able to just play. And when does that happen in church? You know when it happens in church? When? Watch a, watch the next time there's a baptism, don't watch the baby. Watch everyone in the congregation's mm. face because all of them are in a sense of play then. Mm. It is amazing, the sense of wonder. Mm. And then it goes away. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Then it's back to the grind, mm. the spiritual grind. Mm. And I think, you know, we had, the, we had this chapel service today that was a hymn sing. Mm. And we sang a few hymns and then they took, basically request from the congregation. And it was all students, of course. And all of the requests were uh, hymns about death. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, like... <laughs> they, uh, okay, yes. But, but they, they were like... I mean, they were also, like, redemptive. And highly energetic. Highly energetic, but they still... They were like, somber, like... But I'm like, remind, and remind then us you of death. But it was like, you know, it was blessed assurance, like yes. things like that. Mm. But I'm like, but there's a certain mindset, yeah. I think, that I think we, what is that word? It is a word I'm looking for. We tilt towards, we're not tilted towards joy. Mm-hmm. We're certainly not t- tilted towards playfulness. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I go to church and I, I go into, I go into church mode and sometimes I go into the pulpit and I go into preacher mode. Yeah. And then sometimes Stephen comes up and plays. Yeah. 
Is that a Christian problem? Or is that just a societal problem? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> curious you're talking about this access of god found deeply embodiedly in the self i don't i hope this isn't like a detached theological question the possibility of it being that is part of what scares me you you started by saying the word became flesh mm. here's an issue jesus then ascended mm. i i was talking with my youth group kiddos recently we were talking about friendship and the last uh, Bible study on friendship was Peter and Jesus chatting by mm. the side mm-hmm. of the Lake of Galilee after the resurrection. And it's this, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Mm-hmm. And some people think that you can dig a little bit too deeply into the Greek. I think this is one of the best areas where like some, some Greek stuff comes out <laughs> as helpful, insightful. Um, Jesus says, do you agapao me? Do you God love me? Mm. And Peter says, I phileo you. I friend love you. Mm. Jesus repeats, hmm, do you agapow me? Mm. And Peter's like, um, you know that I friend love you. Mm. <laughs> and the, the third time, Jesus says, do you phileo me? Do you friend love me? Mm. And Peter says, yes, mm. you know that I friend love you. Mm. And people always talk that one down as if it was some sort of accommodation or something. But I, I just think that Peter is, and maybe uniquely in his time and space, having touched and interacted with Jesus, uh, is just sad to lose his friend. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I'm jealous of that experience because, you know, apart from the very kind of theoretical, theological, like, body of Christ as the church and, like, I see Christ in you type of thing, we now live with the parent, son, and Holy Spirit, none of whom have a body. Mm. that, you know, there's like an open theological question about Jesus's body up in heaven right now. But so, so I don't know what to do with the disembodied nature of you know, how we think about God, mm. other than the idea of the body of Christ, which mm-hmm. is important I, but hard to access. I think there's this thing that God appears to us like as much as we can handle God. So God, so whatever God needs to be mm. in time and space, God becomes, you know, because I, I, th- I do think the part, John, that sometimes we miss is we say the word became flesh and dwelt among us is the big part for me. Mm. And and I, is this heretical if I say and dwells among us? Say it, say it, say it. And, and, and dwells among us now, dwells in this little yeah. tiny studio among us now. This cursed little box. Yeah, like <laughs> we, the word, the word is constantly becoming flesh. And I think I mm. tend to want to look for God out there, which is, which for me feels like, like I'm doing this hand motion out there somewhere. That's when I become dissociated, that's where I go. Yeah. To the hypothetical, to the theoretical, hypothetical. rather than the tangible. And I'm out of the incarnate. room. Yeah. I'm out of the room. Yeah. And Byron, I think you're right. What, how do I get back? How do I get back into the room? Yeah. It's Kids don't seem to have that issue like there's a story of this little girl i don't know where i stole the story from this little girl is 
furiously drawing in class, drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing. And the teacher comes to her and says, what are you drawing? And she's like, I'm drawing God. And the teacher is like, kind of gently was like, well, I mean, you can't really draw God because nobody knows what God looks like. And without me to, without missing a beat, the little girl says, well, they will now. So mm. there's that. Like, I, <laughs> wow. think, I think kids don't, <laughs> they don't have the theological separation that we get that we, yeah. that I feel, I feel like it gets learned out of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and one of the main things that I've heard when we're talking to kids about prayer is, does God listen in a way of like God's active hearing just as any other person would. There isn't yet, you know, the, the maybe the theological imagination or capacity to think beyond the, interpersonal relationship mm. which you know on one hand it's like okay there are problems with anthropomorphizing god but on the other hand how much is that disembodying us by putting it into a theoretical you know theology that we can't touch mm-hmm. and yeah. the idea of like god is a person with ears who's listening to our prayer being so much more personal it's like have you ever had anyone do uh reiki yeah <laughs> didn't know, work but, <laughs> but it's literally and I, I remember somebody saying, well, that's not Christian. I'm like, well, it's laying on of hands is what mm. it is. Mm. Massage is the lay. Getting, going somewhere and getting a massage is laying of hands. Yeah. And it can be holy. Mm. You know, I remember I, I was in this group of queer black men, and somebody said, my sex life is anointed. Mm. And I'm like, oh, shit, you can't. And I really, you my first say thought that. was, yeah. you can't say that. And I'm like. But why? And, he, and this person was like, well, God's in the bedroom. Mm. Whether you want. Whether uh-huh. you want God there uh-huh. or not, God's in the bedroom. <laughs> so, you know, and we have so much shame about, mm. I, have, I have had so much sexual shame yeah. that's been taught to me by people who had sexual shame. And to be like, God's in all of that. It's hard. I, Byron, it's hard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's, but I think it's getting back to that. Kids do it without thinking about it. You know, Wesley, you were talking about Byron's senior sermon earlier, and I have to agree, Byron, that's when I hear, whether it was in that sermon or, you know, in all the times that we've been talking before, I feel like your conversations through the lens of sexuality are one of the most embodied times that I've seen you. Hmm. And and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your own experience of embodiment and maybe talking about bisexuality if you want to, but like, I'm curious because, again, I, I agree you were so big in that pulpit, I think, not just because you have a gift at preaching, which we both recognize you do. Cleophas LaRue recognizes that yeah. you do, by the way. I <laughs> can preach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, because also what you were talking about is something that is really important to who you are. You know, it, it can't be extricated from your person. It, it's, I don't want to say that it's become, like, so often one of the critiques of queer people is like, oh, your queerness becomes your identity. And we've talked about, like, right. you know, ways that that's limiting for people viewing the whole of you. But I think in a real sense, there's something really profound and beautiful of how that has been such an important way that you have self-communicated either to the world or to yourself. And even, you said this thing, which I will never forget. Well, it's in the Bible. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> people love was, that. <laughs> it was so but the plate, the playful. It was yeah. playful, yeah. but it also invited us in in such a profound mm. way. Everyone in that, play, well, maybe some people were uncomfortable, <laughs> but all you know, I was in, I was in my yeah. body because of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, 
thanks be to God. Like there was one person who said, I was going to leave the church. And then, and then you like that sermon brought me back because there's Mm. enough space there. I think for me, the embodiment has to come with a, a holistic acknowledgement of presence, at least for me, you know, and I think sexual theology is really misunderstood Marcella Althaus-Reed, for instance, uses sexual theology to point to the larger scandal of economic and class and environmental exploitation um, and damage. The, the not centeredness, but the coreness. Mm. Like sex gets really, really deep inside of you, so to speak. It it is that inextricable point of, and I I guess I want to be sensitive to like asexual people, but um, I think that there's something, and this is even weird for me as an aromantic person, of like, what does it mean to have these things all kind of bound up together inextricably? Um, so even just the the classic, and, and the Jewish authors of the Hebrew Bible were really squeamish about certain sexual things. They had all these euphemisms for body parts, and what they just couldn't actually ever talk about anything directly. But one thing that did is that then put sex everywhere. If you start using euphemisms, that now sexualizes other things. Rather mm. than confining sex to this little box, it I, I heard you saying something about this a little bit, Wesley. It, it blasts it open to the universal. And so one of the primary understandings of to have sex with in the Bible is to know. Mm-hmm. To know and be known. And that doesn't then need to be only this like genitalia type thing. But to to touch, to sense, these start to get less and less tangible in a way that retains its its like knowledge of connection and participation. So at least at least for me the and I don't I don't know how and why this is. Maybe it's because of some mystics that I've read, hmm. you know, Teresa of Avila or mm-hmm. Mechthild of Magdeburg or, or people who have this is even one of the biggest sources of disagreements between you and I, Char, and our eschatology is I am dead set on an eschatology that needs to retain and essentially touch every single created thing mm-hmm. that 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 sees it for what it is and celebrates it and, and whatever. So the idea of like disillusion and an ambiguizing, that's not a word. Uh, Dissolution, like dissolving. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Would be a threat to, as I see it, like embodiment and, and things. So this is really at least core mm-hmm. core to me. And this is coming from someone who really, frankly, has not had a lot of sex. <laughs> like, and, and I I'm think, an old horse. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and yeah, so I think there's that, there's that value and there's that discovery. And, you know, I think, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like a very important part of the embodiment for you is not just the moment, but also the desire that leads to that moment. Yeah. Like, I feel like desire is a really important part of your understanding of embodiment, too. I mean, you feel desire in your body. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it's leading you to embodied encounter. Yeah. And I think it's, to your point, by when you, like, people talk about libido, like, it's a sex thing. Libido is right. literally life force. Life, yeah, right. And sex is part of life force. And I think we, you know, again, we, we want to separate sex from the rest of us, mm-hmm. or rest of ourselves. We just can't. 
we, we try we try god we try yeah and also leaving space for the various ways then the, that this can get expressed mm-hmm. right that i don't think that someone is less alive if they're asexual right Absolutely. you know mm-hmm. um but maybe this necessarily expands the way that we then talk about sexuality absolutely um that there is something profound about human encounter like the even the, the idea of knowing another right mm-hmm. and there are different kinds encountering of, another there are different yeah. kinds of knowing different kinds of encounters and the sexual is for people who are allosexual it is a deep and profound and intimate encounter uh, but what it's pointing us towards is the maybe more universal importance of embodied encounter with other people and the mm. intimacy of that 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 can only be shared in like in some ways the individual encounter whether that be one-on-one or in like a small group and then expansively into bigger and bigger communities ultimately we we're only ever encountering that one person in that moment even in a group there's something mm. about like i speak in a room like as i'm talking to this room and there's the two of you my spirit is recognizing the way that it is landing with you and the way that it is landing with you. Namaste, bro. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there, there's actually a different connection that's taking yeah. place in both of these one-on-one connections, yeah. even though we're in the space together. And there's this, you know, it, there's this, uh, I guess, black colloquialism, like, you know, oh, yeah, I fucks with you. Right? Yeah. Like, it, that's, that's deeply profound. Yeah. Yeah. To say, I fucks with you, Byron. I fucks with you, Char. Like, mm-hmm. it's, that is, I know you. Yeah. You know me. It is, yeah. and it is, it's beyond, it's weird, it's physicality, but it's beyond physicality. Mm-hmm. It's this whole way of being with other people. And I don't think, you could be in a whole family unit and not have that at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in a house where there wasn't a lot of physical affection and not a lot of I love yous. Mm-hmm. And I have a th- three younger brothers, and it's interesting, when we're together now, we can't keep our hands off mm-hmm. each other. We're constantly, we're all, we all, we're all bald. We're, <laughs> we're constantly touching each other. And it's this beautiful thing, yeah, this yeah. need to be embodied with mm-hmm. each other. And he's like, you know, my brothers, my three younger brothers are all str- these, these straight men who can't stop telling me I love you. Yeah. And it, I, I, you know, what is it in, the, uh, it, you know, if I don't, the rocks will cry out. Like mm-hmm. we, it cries mm-hmm. out. We're crying out. That what? A, what an embodied expression in the Bible. Yeah. Like if we will not be embodying praise in our bodies, the things that we attribute generally no like spiritual life to, they will come alive in ways that we couldn't possibly consider before. They are the epitome of embodiment. It is just a rock. But like it is alive, and it will sing praises to God <laughs> if we can't in our bodies. Yeah, like moon and all stars. Yeah, yeah. Like like all the things that sing praise to God in the Bible. Yeah. All the non-human. All the non-human yeah. things. It's gorgeous. Praise him with everything. Yeah. Everything yeah. that has life and breath. Wow. Mm. You're talking about your siblings and how you can't stop saying, I love you to each other now. And that just reminded me of a beautiful story that you shared of how uh, your mama has recently started to say, I love you based on your prompting. that you, You've invited her into sharing. You know, I... Hmm... So my mom is now, she won't hear this, so I can say it. My mom's now 93, and I, it was only about 10 years ago, and I remember telling a friend of mine, you know, I know my mom loves me. It's clear that she's never said it. And 
my friend said, well, have you said it first? I'm like, she's the mama. Yeah. That's her. That's not my job. And he's like, well, if you want to hear it. And I remember the first time it, we were on the phone and I'm like, I love you, mama. And there was this weird pause. Mm. And she said it back. But even to this day, she will only say it back if I say it. Mm. And it's and it's beautiful. Yeah. It's really beautiful. But so you, I think we, by... Mm, by being our fully embodied selves, yeah. we give other people permission mm. to be embodied. It is the gift. That is the gift. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think a lot of people come from families where that that we can be the ones who break that cycle mm. and give people God, just what a what a ministry to give permission. Yeah. And that is one one of the gifts that you've given me is you have Awoken bossy charge. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, like, you're like, she needs to put a lid on. <laughs> I need to put her back in the box because now she's just bossing me around daily. <laughs> like, that's like and a, the uniqueness. I mean, the unique uh, charge. It's a privilege to be sitting in this little mm-hmm. triumvirate here because this is now probably two of the top five people in the world who love you most. Yeah. Mm. And I might argue who you love most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're gonna make you uh, do a blood oath before this little <laughs> show is over. But but the the profound difference in your connection to us. Oh my goodness! And your yeah. connection to mm. me. Yeah. The uniqueness. Mm. The difference between those two. That it's not a convergence. Right. It's not like mm. the closer you get to me, the more you have to fit into a specific box. Mm. Right. Yeah. There's this phrase, and I I looked every I heard it, and then I looked everywhere for it, again. So. I don't think I came up with it, but maybe I was hallucinating. Uh, or God delivered it to me somehow. Mm. Jesus is the one person who we can all look or be more like, and by doing so, not just end up looking like each other. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. The unique Ooh. embodiedness of of your being, of Christ's being, of our being, remains something that allows us to be known uniquely. Yeah. Mm. You'd hear more of Byron's wisdom if you listen to our podcast. <laughs> no, that's really good. Um, I will. Pro- I might steal it and do it. Maybe give you the acknowledgement. I, uh. You know, I heard once. Uh-huh. <laughs> you have heard it said. You heard it said. <laughs> Don't come for me. Yeah, but it, it's so true that I, you two, are profoundly different people, mm-hmm. and I'm so grateful for the ways that you're different. You know, it's not like ah. Oh, Byron, I wish you could be more like Wesley. Ugh, Wesley, why can't you be more like Byron? And it's like, no, I, I have loved you both for exactly who you are. Even in the ways that it has presented challenges, those challenges have honestly always been beautiful challenges in ways that I have continued to grow as a, as a result. Well, Byron and I are perfect, so if there's a challenge... That it's means true. that you're it on it. It's my own issue. It's yeah. your own inadequacy. And then I'm refined by the fire and yeah. the glory. Yeah, exactly. the light shineth down and <laughs> well, melteth away all that. You're welcome. The impurities, yeah. <laughs> um, in our remaining few minutes, I just want to hear if there's anything else that that you want to share that you would feel remiss not to not to share with us. You know. I, I, I want to express some gratitude. I want to express, you know, I will say, I will tell this brief-ish story that when I got on, you know, after that first horrible COVID year that oh we all spent together, yeah. which as horrible as it is, it, 
I don't know that we would have the friendships that we have yeah. without it. Yeah. So I'll say that. But but I remember I got, so it was the second year. I had been living in Princeton for a year, and I met a new student named Angel. It was the first mm. day of orientation. Mm. And this is an Angel fan club right here. Yeah. We have three people who are Angel. So <laughs> I, I meet Angel, and Angel said that they had just been on a tour. <laughs> you know, know the, the story. story. <laughs> yeah. They had just been on a tour. And I'm like, oh, who gave you a tour? Oh, my God. I can't remember the name. But it was someone really, really enthusiastic and barefoot. And I'm like, barefoot? Oh, my God. My pearls clutch. My New York I was like, girl, I don't know, honey. And so I'm like, who? And it was like, and I had only seen the two of you mm-hmm. on a Zoom screen. Oh, so I didn't, my and I'm gosh. like, and I'm like, who running around barefoot like sa- I was? Oh, I went off. I like, <laughs> and so then the next day was our first. Mm. It was one of the holiest moments in my entire time here. Was our, mm. our opening convocation, oh, right. and it was when we had all seen each other. It was like, literally, it was like Jesus appearing yeah. to the disciples. It was like we we're all seeing each other in the flesh for the first mm. time, and it was this beautiful service, and we were. It was so embodied, and I remember, Char, you were climbing over the pews, <laughs> and I'm like, she ain't got no shoes on. In the Lord's In house? In the Lord's house. This child, I'm like, oh, Lord, it's blasphemy. And then so I was sitting, standing with our friend Denise, uh-huh. and I see you, Char, who I'd never met in person, uh-huh. running towards Denise, running towards Denise, barefoot, down the center aisle. I'm like, oh, here comes this child. And at the last minute, you turn to me and you leap into my arms and say, I've been waiting so long. Ah, shit. I've been waiting so long to meet you. And if that's not a Jesus moment, I don't know what is. So, you know, my friend Dave is like, how would you have imagined that your best friend is in an is this, and I, I don't think you'll be insulted by this, this barefoot wolf child. <laughs> <laughs> I, I put that on my resume. <laughs> so it's, I mean, look at God. Yeah. Yeah. And that brought out Stephen. Yeah. Mm. Whom I love so much. Mm. And for me, you know, in that beginning season, we're all trying to reorient after what was an entirely disorienting year. And one of the grounding aspects of my experience was chapel. Mm -hmm. And I got to see you there at the front, welcoming everyone as one of the chapel assistants. And your beautiful presence just making that space hospitable. But then after chapel, and people would go off to lunch, and I didn't have a community yet. And I I did, you know, it's like being that, that new kid at school again. You're just like, what do I do? And almost every day, it, it wasn't every day, but there was, it was often why you were just walking by. You're going to head over to um, the Princeton store or somewhere on Nassau to pick something up. You had some chore to do usually afterward. And I would just ask you if I could walk with you. And every single time you said yes. And it was that open invitation that really solidified the beauty of our connection was that you you never, and I don't want to say anything about like boundaries, like obviously boundaries are important, you know, and all, but the way that you so openly invited me into your life in the small things, walking with you for some chores was the most meaningful thing and, and is what I needed. And what if the church, 
Say it. Say it. What if the church? What if simply? What if the church did that? Uh-huh. What? If, what? If, what? What if that was the experience of going to church? Mm. You can come with me. Yeah, I don't have to save you. What the fuck? <laughs> like I don't have to to save you. I can I just be with you? That mm. it feels like that's what Jesus did. First disciples, come and see. Yeah, didn't. Where are you staying, did, Rabbi? Yeah, did Jesus ever say worship me? Ever. No, no. Follow me. Come and see. Yeah. Not yeah. even in the eschatological reveal is there this command, worship me. Mm. It's blessed are you for when I was embodied in the least of these, you mm. poured out love onto me. Mm. That's amen. Stephen, <laughs> I love you so much. Love you too. Love you both. And thank you, beloved, as well, for joining us with this lovely conversation as we are wrapping up at least this season of Barefoot to Emmaus. So, beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace.